Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Well, good morning. It is great to be here. You have, this is a full morning. I'm just going to tell you in advance. We got a baptism. The elders will be speaking a little later as well. And you've already heard three messages from, um, from Rob, Doug, and JJ. It was like, okay, like I was ready to say, let's just preach and go home right there. It was great. I want to encourage you to stay in prayer for those guys as they head out. And as we open the word together, will you stand with me as we read it together? Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You may be seated. One of the things you want to remember as you open up this passage is that it is an interruption in the middle of a message, okay? It's easy to kind of start with Acts chapter 4 and read it as its own story, But I want you to picture that Peter was in the middle of preaching to hundreds and hundreds, possibly thousands of people there in kind of uh, Solomon's portico in the temple. He was preaching to them, and all of a sudden, in walked the high priest with with their officer. Uh, The Hebrew word is, the the Greek word there is saga. It's the guy who literally is in charge. I thought about what might happen today, actually, if I had a police officer right in the middle of the message come up and handcuff me and walk me out. I thought about doing that, and then I thought, man, somebody's going to take a picture of that, and that's going to get out on the internet. Like, what happened in the service? But I want you to feel, for just a moment, the the reality of that. It would have been really hard to say, just kidding, as I'm going out the door, okay? But I want you to feel the reality of that, because that's what happens here. Peter's in the middle of preaching, and all of a sudden, these individuals show up, and they arrest him, right, with John. There's three things you need to know. We've talked about this little phrase, when God is at work, that's what's happening in the early chapters of Acts. The work of God disrupts the status quo, the Spirit of God empowers us to be bold, and the Son of God saves us from ourselves. Now, I know some of you are saying, wait, wait a minute, Phil, the Son of God saves us from our sin. That's correct. Put that on hold. I'll be back there, okay? But I just want you to understand these three things are at work here. The work of God disrupts the status quo, the Spirit of God empowers us to be bold, and the Son of God saves us from ourselves. I just want to show you the status quo. 
The text says that they were greatly annoyed and they arrested him. Now, I I just need to talk about that in two ways, okay? Self-serving leaders instinctively protect their power, okay? Self-serving leaders instinctively protect their power. Now, when you first read this and you realize that the Sadducees are the ones who come in and make a big stink about this and say, hey, we're arresting you, throwing you in jail for the night. We'll talk about it in the morning. When you first read that, you might think, well, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So when he starts to talk about the resurrection, they probably are pulling him out on a theological issue. I don't think so. I think they're pulling him out exclusively on a political issue. Let me see if I can explain it another way. The Sadducees were the leaders that were responsible from which the high priest came. They were responsible for watching what was going on in the temple. Kind of picture this. The Pharisees were responsible for what goes on in the synagogues, but the Sadducees manage what goes on in the temple. Now, remember, they're under Roman occupation. So what's happened is the Sadducees have raised money so that they can pay Rome. So because Rome has to appoint their high priest, the high priest pays him. It's like a serious mafia thing going on in the first century, okay? And what happens is the Sadducees pay and Rome says, okay, we'll let you be high priest again. And and the religious leaders that ran the temple were wealthy, wealthy, wealthy people. You say, well, where did they get their money? Great question. They got their money because they set up tables in what was known as the court of the Gentiles to sell things, animals that had to be sacrificed. And trust me, it was like buying Chick-fil-A in the airport. It was high priced, okay? It was much higher there than it was if they'd have bought it out of town. But they had to buy it there because they were the ones who said, this is the perfect sacrifice. We'll sell it to you at this price. And all the while... The Sadducees were just raking in, particularly the high priest element, were just raking in funds, okay? Highly, highly wealthy. In fact, when you read stuff about him back there, you read that uh, Annas was one of the high priests. There was something known as Annas's Bazaar, which meant he literally ran a shopping mall right there on the temple grounds. When Jesus comes in and flips the temple, flips the tables in the temple, okay, you got to know what's being said, Jesus is saying, I'm I'm taking this back. You guys aren't in charge anymore, right? And that's why just a week later, five days later, they crucify him. Now, now all of that is self-serving leaders instinctively protecting their own power. It's always the case. What I want you to see is that whatever self-serving leaders you know of, God is still working through them, right? And that's why we read in this next text The rulers and elders and scribes with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas. Annas is Caiaphas is is his son-in-law. They're both serving as high priest, Caiaphas during the crucifixion of Christ, but Annas still kind of had that title. And they would hold, this group of people would hold a meeting known as the Sanhedrin, and it looked like this. Coming back to this in a second, so just watch it. Seventy people that would make a judgment Can you imagine standing in front of 70 people? They could make any judgment they wanted to except for a life and death decision that had to go to Rome, and that's why Jesus was ultimately crucified by the Romans, right? This is the environment that Peter's about to find himself in. Self-serving leaders instinctively protect their own power, but know this as well. Yesterday's decisions do not control tomorrow's outcomes. Remember that these very religious leaders were the ones who crucified Christ because Caiaphas said, listen, um, one needs to die for the whole nation or the nation's going to be in trouble because everybody was starting to rise up around Jesus. And he said, we're going to have a rebellion. It's going to take over. The Romans are going to come down and smash our city. Oh, and we're going to lose all our money. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to find a way to execute Jesus. 
They thought that they could stop what was about to happen if they executed Jesus, right? Get the leader, take him out, everything will be okay. And yet when you read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, there's 120 people gathering. Acts chapter 2, by the time you get there, there's 3,000 people that are saved. And in the text we read today, there's 5,000 people who are saved. And by the time you get to Acts 21, you read that there's many thousands who had come to faith in Christ. Just imagine this. You think what you're doing today is getting rid of the leader, and what you've done is you have created an entire movement that you have no control over. You say, well, how could they have any control over it? They couldn't, because when Jesus left, he said, I am sending the Holy Spirit who's about to come and he will guide you in all things. And suddenly there was Jesus who was gone. They thought they were okay. And the Holy Spirit shows up and all of those leaders are in a heap of trouble. The Spirit of God empowers us to be bold. How many of you at some stage in your life have thought, "Mm, I really need to share my faith in some way with this person or, and then all of a sudden the opportunity came and I'll just say, you kind of chickened out and it went past you. Any takers on that? Okay. A few honest people, okay? The rest of you, let that thought question settle in. Most of us at some stage have thought I should share, but then we all of a sudden, for some reason, back away from sharing. I just want you to remember what Peter is about to do in addressing these individuals is like going to the Supreme Court and speaking flawlessly, so flawlessly that they will actually say of him in the next chapter, um, wait a minute, these men have been with Jesus. That's why they can talk like this. This is the same guy who 50 days earlier was so frightened that he denied Christ three times in a row standing by the fire on a cold night. This is the Spirit of God empowering us to be bold. Three things we notice. Under the Spirit's control, we can do what we never thought we could. Under the Spirit's control, we can do what we never thought we could. That's right. That's why... Faith is the element that allows us to step forward in trusting the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us and to give us the wisdom in that moment that we need. Under the Spirit's control, we can do what we never thought we could. Note this. Here it is. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the thing you've got to know about Peter as you read the Gospels is that Peter was never filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter was always just filled with Peter, okay? It was always about Peter. It was about him saying, "Uh, those other guys are going to deny you, Lord, but I won't deny you. Uh, Jesus says to Peter, listen, we're about to go out uh, from the upper room. And Peter says, oh, I got a sword. Like, Like, Peter, there's 600 soldiers coming. But Peter doesn't care, right? Peter is always making it about himself, except here. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And what you're about to see is such a radical transformation in Peter that you're thinking he's not even the same guy. That's right, he's not, because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Under the Spirit's control, we can do what we never thought we could. Under the Spirit's control, we have no fear of man. That's right. Under the Spirit's control, we have no fear of man. Now, um, for just a moment, know this, that we grow up from the moment we start to interact with other human beings we struggle with the fear of man. The scripture says that perfect love casts out fear. If 
you're afraid of what someone thinks about you, if you're afraid of what someone says about, says about you on social media, if you're afraid of what your fellow workers think about you, if you're afraid of what your fellow students say about you, whatever it might be, the fear of man is working. But I want you to see this. There is probably few places in the Bible where it is so clear that under the Spirit's control, fear is not there. Okay. And I want to show you that in this picture again. Okay. Look at what Peter says. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. So he's addressing the Sanhedrin. You want to know whose name it is? It's Jesus' name. And he's the one whom you crucified. Okay. Now, he's pointing right at them because this room where the Sanhedrin was, was where 50 days earlier Jesus was. The men who are sitting in these seats were the very men who said he should be crucified. They were the men. Because remember, when that whole thing goes down, Jesus is captured in the garden. He is taken and stands before Annas. Then he goes to Caiaphas. Then he goes to the Sanhedrin. Then he goes to Pilate. Then he goes to Herod. Then he goes to Pilate. There's six trials that happen on that night. But this room, this very room, which was a room kind of set off in the temple mount itself, there's this room that was set up for the Sanhedrin to gather. Just 50 days earlier, Jesus was in this room, okay, and they all condemned him. So when Peter stands up, Peter, the very Peter who was afraid of the servant girl, and says, rulers and people of Israel, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jesus, the one who was in this room, guys, remember, you condemned him, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. He looks at the man that's healed. He said, it's not about me. It's about the name of Jesus that you crucified, okay? Every part about that is like, Peter, where did you find your courage? Like, that's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And the answer for that is that he was filled with the Spirit. Under the Spirit's control, we have no fear of man. And here's the final one. Under the Spirit's control, we would never touch God's glory. That's right. We wouldn't make it about us. It would always just be about the glory of God, because we would realize that the Spirit was the one who did it. Now, just for a moment, if, if you can think back through, think about how Peter kind of steps out, says something, opens up his mouth, always braggadocious Peter. He's the one who talks more than anybody else in the gospel, almost as much as Jesus, okay? Like, that's Peter. But notice what he says in verse 10. He takes no credit for this, but simply says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What's missing from this discussion is any reference to, any reference at all to, uh, to Peter. Okay. Because, here's the truth, under the Spirit's control, we wouldn't attempt to touch God's glory. I remember uh, when I was in seminary, so that's a long, long time ago for me, okay? But when I was in seminary, um, they had an individual in chapel by the name of J. Oswald Sanders who came from New Zealand to preach to us, okay? And he was 90 years old when he taught, and they brought him, literally, they walked him to the podium, one guy on each side holding his arms. They got him to the podium, he clamped on to the podium, and they let him go and walk back down. And then this 90-year-old man <clears throat> preaches, Okay? Of, of all that he had seen God do and, and all the warnings he wanted to give um, seminary students who were sitting there. And I've remembered, I remember some of what he said, but I really remember how he ended it. Here was his warning, OK? 
okay? He said, uh, future pastors, here's what I want you to know. Never touch the three G's, okay? I'm sitting there, okay, I'm writing down three G's. What are the three G's, okay? He said, never touch the gold, never touch the girls, never touch the glory, right? Now, that's 30 years ago for me. And I can look back and see men who had been elevated in ministry way up beyond anything that I would ever be elevated to, and I have seen them fall on every single one of those accounts. Here's the thing. I think the hardest thing to not touch is in some way God's glory. It's easy in every conversation for us just to insert a little bit of us into it. Peter doesn't. Peter doesn't. In fact, you may remember that when they moved the Ark of the Covenant, um, and they moved it with on, in a way that they weren't supposed to move it, with an ox cart, and there were poles there, and they were trying to move it, but all of a sudden, the, the ox stumbled, and the Ark started to fall off, and Uzzah, one of the men who was walking alongside, reached out and touched it, and God struck him dead, like right there. And the text actually says that David was upset about that, like, God, we're just trying to move the Ark, like, what's wrong? And God reminds us, R.C. Sproul says, that, that it's not the earth. If the ark had hit the ground, it wouldn't have been defiled. The earth, does, the earth doesn't rebel against God. It rains, it takes the water. It grows plants. It does what it's supposed to do. Only man thinks he knows better than God. Man is the rebellious image in the picture who reaches out and touches the ark. I want you to see that because you and I can't insert ourselves into something that the Holy Spirit is doing in our life or through us without touching His glory. Peter doesn't do it. Then there's one final thought. Here it is. The Son of God saves us from ourselves. Now you say, Phil, the Son of God saves us from sin. That's true. He does. But every time I've ever confronted someone who rejected the gospel, it usually falls in one of two categories. It usually falls in self-righteousness I'm going to get there on my own. I know I've done wrong, but I haven't done as much wrong as somebody else. I'm going to get there on my own, okay? Or it falls in self-pity. Pastor, if you knew the things I'd done, you'd know that nobody could forgive me, including God, okay? That's thinking pretty highly of yourself too, right? In both cases, whether it's self-righteousness or self-pity, we need saving from ourselves if we're going to find the gospel. So here's a couple things we understand from the text about the gospel, When it comes to Jesus, he won't be received by all. That's right. He won't be received by all. And if you follow the crowd, you'll miss him. Okay? I'm just going to tell you that. If you follow what everybody else is doing, you're probably going to miss Jesus. You're not going to see him. And note this. Right from the start, right in that message, Peter continues his message now in front of the Sanhedrin. And this is what he says. The stone that was rejected by you, the builders, you crucified him and you rejected him. And it's this great reminder to us, I think, that that we should just understand something about the person of Christ. He will be not received by all. He will be rejected by some. If you follow the crowd, you're going to miss him. Here's the second idea. He is of supreme importance. Everything and everyone is measured by him. He is of supreme importance. Everything and everyone is measured by him. And I mean that not that he measures them, which he will one day, but I mean that what's going to happen is that when you evaluate yourself, you have to evaluate yourself up against Christ, like the plumb line. 
And the word that's used there to describe it is this one. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, here's the thing about a cornerstone. Here it is, right? It's the most perfect stone you have in the lot because you're going to set it as the corner, and from there, you're going to build your walls out to the right and to the left and probably up. So you want the most perfect stone you can as the cornerstone. If you've ever done any building, you know that whatever happens to that corner matters. What is off a half an inch down here is off three and a half feet if you keep walking the wall out that way. You've got to get the corner precisely right. And by the way, this is great language. It isn't only here. It's back in the Old Testament in Psalm 118. Remember when they, they were singing, um, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, they, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's taken from Psalm 118. One verse in front of it is the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and it's marvelous in our eyes. While they rejoiced in Christ coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Jesus was saying, listen, there's a verse ahead of this that's about to happen. You're going to reject, and that stone will become the corner stone. Just thinking of that, just how valuable that is. You know, we were singing songs about hallelujah, Justin, but you were also singing songs about heaven. And I was thinking how this verse, there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. Like, this is the security when we face eternity, It's a security. I love the way the old hymn writer got it. He said it like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's right. When you face the moment where you will float out into eternity, it's not going to be about you. It's only going to be about the name of Christ. As a pastor, you have these really cool moments where you kind of just all of a sudden are with someone and you realize like you're almost touching eternity. I had that moment with a gentleman years ago who was on hospice and his family called me and said, will you go visit him? And so I took my guitar, and I'm singing by his bedside and working through that whole process. And I got to this last verse, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And on the last verse, on the last word of the chorus, the man breathed his last. I remember stepping back from the bed and thinking, that's it. Everything we think is so important, everything we think is so valuable, everything we're working for doesn't matter in that moment, but one thought, it is on Christ, the solid rock that we stand. Because of what he did, we have hope, not because of what we've done. And that brings us to the last point, and here it is. He alone can save us from our sins. That's right. He saves us from ourselves but ultimately, he alone can save us from our sins. That's what he says in Acts chapter 4. Notice how he says this. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Peter is saying this to the 70 religious leaders who form the Supreme Court of Israel. And he's saying, right there, there's only one name, and it's not yours, and it's not the high priest, and it's nobody in this room. It's only Jesus. Charles Simeon captured it this way. None but Jesus could atone for sin. None but Jesus could yield such an obedience to the law. Are you ready for this? As it should be capable of being imputed to others. You say, what does that mean? That means that when you place your faith in Christ, his righteousness was so perfect that it can actually be put to your account as a sinner. That's remarkable. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved. The theologian Sproul captured it this way. Moses could mediate the law. Muhammad could brandish a sword. Buddha could give a personal counsel. Confucius could offer wise sayings. But none of these men was qualified to offer an atonement for the sins of the world. Christ alone is worthy of unlimited devotion and service. And that's why we say that he alone is the name that can save. It seems like it's a great place to end the message but the message isn't over, right? We're going to have a baptism where you're going to hear someone share of their faith in Christ. Like the man that was crippled that Peter and John raised up and said, in the name of Jesus, this thing happened. And I'm reminded um, of this thought. And I just want you to participate w- with me as we shift to that part of the service. Just say this verse with me. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, you said that pretty casually, like you were watching a a Sunday afternoon golfing event, okay? And it's got to be said a little bit more violently than that, right? So just go with verse 12 with me. There it is. And there is no salvation. You ready? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.